Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 20th of August. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, there's only one big dominant story in world affairs this week, and that's the incredibly dramatic events in Afghanistan, the takeover by the Taliban, and the chaos that's broken out in in Kabul and elsewhere in the country. So I think we're going to go straight to that subject. And Emily, of all the extraordinary scenes we've witnessed in the coverage of this over the past days, is there anything you'd like to particularly pick out? I will hone in on President Biden's address to the nation after Kabul fell earlier this week. It is not super surprising to me that after 20 years of what I see as just a series of American callous blunders that we have blundered our way out of Afghanistan. But I will nevertheless note that in his speech, Biden reaffirmed that he was making the correct decision and then blamed Afghans for not being willing to fight. And, and, and more shockingly, to my mind, said that the reason that Afghans had not more Afghans had not left the country was because they they didn't want to leave or because the Afghan government had said, no, don't, you know, don't take too many people, don't help too many people get out. That would be bad for for morale. I, I just want to say that had Biden come out and said, I maintain that after 20 years and a trillion dollars and so this many Afghan civilian lives and this many American lives, I maintain that we made the right choice. But our priority now is getting as many Afghan civilians who want to come out as possible. I would not have necessarily criticized that speech, but that's not what he said. Right. It was a truly it was an America first speech and an ahistorical one at that. Yeah. What about you, Jeremy? We have a special issue of the New Statesman out this week on the events in Afghanistan, including a leader excoriating uh, the US government's uh, decisions and language around this. Uh, so I'd strongly recommend everyone read that. I will not easily forget some of the unbelievable scenes that we've seen, particularly coming from Kabul airport. Obviously, this is not the only corner of the country where the events of the last weeks have caused chaos and human misery, but the way that the desperation of those Afghans trying to get out of the country following this shockingly fast Taliban takeover was expressed in the, the dramatic scenes from that airport, Afghans trying to get on, onto, onto airplanes, Western powers catastrophically failing to anticipate the speed of events and deliver on the most basic humanitarian responsibilities is just 
a moment for the ages. And, you know, these these pictures will be in history books in 20, 30, 40 years time. So I think that's that's what will stick with me. To discuss the dramatic events of the last days in Afghanistan, we're very pleased to be joined by John Simpson, the world affairs editor of BBC News. John's worked for the corporation uh, since the start of his career in 1970. He's reported from more than 120 countries, including on a number of occasions Afghanistan. So he's a great person to ask about what to make of the recent events and, and their historical context. John, thank you very much for joining us on World Review. Well, it's a great pleasure. And I'd also like to thank you for your excellent uh, essay, which is part of our big cover package in this week's New Statesman about events in Afghanistan, what we've called The Great Betrayal, which I'd strongly recommend listeners read and we will put in the show notes for this podcast. So to start the conversation, John, I'd like to ask you, what was your immediate reaction to these extraordinary scenes that we've seen in the last few days as someone who knows the country? What did you make of it? Well, a horror, really horror that so many decent people whom I know there should be abandoned to the organisation they regard as the, it's great, their greatest enemy in the world. And it was the callous way, the sort of almost careless way that it was done that was so very, very painful. I have to say, it wasn't altogether a surprise to me. What was a surprise was reading that the CIA thought that the the, uh, Ashraf Ghani government had another three months to go when the Taliban were already on the move. That seemed absolutely ludicrous to me. I've seen now four, uh, Kabul fall, four different times. After the uh, Russian withdrawal in 1989, in 1996, when the Taliban took over from more moderate Mujahideen, 2001, when the Northern Alliance with Western help, not uh, boots on the ground, it has to be said, but air help came in and took over the country. And now at a distance, sadly, I've watched what's been happening this time. It's always been fast. It's never been more than a matter of a few days. And in really in in, uh, 1996, when the Taliban took over the country, it was a matter of just hours. And I don't know where everybody got the idea from that it was going to take so long. That was part of the outrage, really, that there was so much ignorance when there's been so much evidence of of what was likely to happen. Talk about learning from history. I'd like to actually ask you about those those previous experiences, particularly your experience of Afghanistan the last time it was under Taliban control. And you, you write in your essay, I was very struck by this line, I had endless debates. Here you're, you're talking about that period, 96 to 2001. I had endless debates with our Taliban minders about, for instance, shots of empty streets. If a bird th- flew through the frame, did that mean the entire sequence would have to be deleted? That's a rather strange line to read. Could you explain it a bit and, and what you think it means about your experiences of Taliban-controlled Afghanistan yes, back then? Absolutely. And it goes much, much, much further than just simply a television reporter's experience. What happened was that the Taliban introduced the most conservative interpretation of the Holy Quran that it is possible to find anywhere on earth. They really did try to take Afghanistan back to the 7th century AD. And 
part of that, only one small part of it, was that nobody was allowed to obtain or own any image of any living creature. So the booksellers, for instance, of, 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 of which there used to be rather a lot uh, in Kabul, even under the Taliban, were constantly being raided by gangs of vigilantes, going through all the books, seeing if there was any picture, any image, it didn't have to be a photographic image, it could be a, a, an artistic one, of, of anything, of an insect, of a, of, of a bird, and of course, of a, of a person. That was what they were most concerned with. I mean, if you work for television, television only exists in images. The only pictures that I was allowed to film were of, of uh, empty streets. I couldn't film a car going through, partly because there weren't very many cars. There was almost no fuel oil by, by the uh, last two, three years of Taliban rule. But also, you know, of course, you might be able to catch a glimpse of, of a head in Sahid or something like that. But the extraordinary thing was, and this is why all of this matters, it was all down to the interpretation of individual uh, Taliban figures. And that wasn't just a matter of television. It was a matter of, of how the entire country was run. Everything was down to whoever happened to be on the ground and in a position to make a decision about whatever it was. Shall we beat this woman up because she showed her ankle briefly when the wind blew her, her burqa aside? This man has Western or, or Western type exercise shoes. Should we beat him up? Does that have the right? And then somebody will make that decision. And yes, they can be beaten. They can be killed. They can be arrested. They can be thrown in jail for years for this, or they can just be allowed to go on. And this government, this new government, will be the same as that. There will be, although there are these principles, these sort of seventh century principles, it'll all depend on the individuals who interpret the laws. I want to get to the Taliban today, but first I'd like to ask you, in your experience and, and as you perceived it, how did the country change after 2001? Well, it was like pouring water on, on parched ground. The millions who had fled Afghanistan during the Taliban period came back. They brought back with the money that they'd often made abroad. They brought their commercial experience that they'd had in other countries, Pakistan, Iran, Western countries, and so forth. And the country absolutely blossomed. Kabul blossomed most of all, of course, because it's the, the centre of everything. There are now skyscrapers in Kabul, whereas there was nothing higher than, I think, a four-storey building when the Taliban were thrown out. Shops absolutely bursting with goods because Pakistan, which has played a very questionable game in Afghanistan for 40 years now, was certainly very pleased to see, even though they liked the Taliban or they used the Taliban, they were very glad to see Afghanistan being more prosperous. And so the shops were full of goods, people wandering around the streets. This all happened really quite 
quite quickly, within a year of the overthrow of the Taliban, you could see that Afghanistan, and in particular Kabul, had joined the rest of the human race again. You know, there are people, and I include myself in this, right, who look at what the United States has done and say, look, this is the most droned or airstruck country in the world. Every uh, inspector general report says that the United States has made blunder after blunder in this country, the civilian deaths, the destabilization. And I think we're right to, to note all of that. But the other reality is that there were gains made, particularly for women and girls, although that is not why the United States went in, right? But, but the reality is that there were substantial gains made in, in people's lives that are also withdrawn with this withdrawal. Well, I would say that's all that the Western involvement essentially did bring was advantages to ordinary people. Yes, uh, there were there were the usual kind of things you get with military involvement. There were wedding parties blown to bits, decent, innocent people blown to pieces because they, uh, it was one of the customs in, in uh, Afghanistan as in other Middle Eastern countries, they fire guns in the air to celebrate. Some idiot uh, spots this and uh, sends in a, an airstrike. That is certainly true, and people some people did die, and of course Western forces were killed as well. There's no no doubt about any of that. But if you were to look at the overall picture of whether Afghanistan as a country was in a better state as a result of the overthrow of the Taliban in 2001, which wasn't actually done by the Americans or the British or anybody else. I mean, it was done by, by Afghan forces with American and British support. You would have, I think, to say that uh, the last 20 years have been years of huge progress for Afghanistan, and that has all been brought to an absolutely shuddering stop. I also just wanted to follow up. You, you mentioned Pakistan's questionable role in all of this. Could you speak a bit more about this? Because I think particularly in, uh, you know, now I think people are, are trying to wrap their heads around what happened, right? But particularly as Kabul was falling, it was very much the United States, Afghanistan, and less analysis about Pakistan's role. So could you speak to that a bit? The Taliban began life in Pakistan, in the camps on the other side of the border from the big, particularly the big southern towns and cities. People fled across them because of the, the Russian involvement, and the Taliban formed as a kind of militia within those Pakistani refugee camps. Quite early on, the ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence Organization of, of Pakistan, of which I've known various senior officers over the years, realized that this was quite a useful weapon to, to have at their disposal in coping with Soviet-controlled Afghanistan. And in fact, the Taliban really, as a, as a, as a movement in its own right, did only start after the Russians had withdrawn. But it was always an instrument for Pakistan's foreign policy, no matter how many times they denied it, it was a useful instrument to them. And the relationship between the Kabul government uh, of the Mujahideen in, in uh, 1991 to 1996 was quite a difficult one. There was a lot of resentment of Pakistan among the, the leaders of, of the new Afghanistan 
Afghanistan, whereas the Taliban were, were able to represent a leveling up of the situation for Pakistan. That was their way of creating a balance there. I'm not it's difficult to tell how exact, how closely the Taliban followed what Pakistan wanted. Very difficult. They're their own group. They don't necessarily listen to anybody. But Pakistan learned ways of speaking to the Taliban, speaking to their leadership, and they weren't absolutely upset about it when the Taliban took over in 1996. Do you, do you think that the Taliban's ability to retake the country now after 20 years is down to that Pakistani support? Could we imagine the, the Taliban capable of what it's pulled off in the last weeks without those years of cooperation, unofficial cooperation with parts of the ISI, the Pakistani military uh, forces? Uh, yeah, I don't think it. I don't think this is a sort of uh, hidden hand of Pakistan behind any of this. Uh, I think it's what the what the Taliban always wanted. Uh, they were waiting simply for the moment when the Americans decided to drop their gaze and to announce that they were going. That was the key moment. The Taliban are an immensely brutal organization if they set their minds to it. Uh, friends of mine have been sending in details. I mean, impossible to, of course, to verify, but of ways in which people who had been resisting them have been in the last few days have been executed and, and injured. I mean, really horrible ways because it passes on the panic. And there's also, I think, a sense in which most more moderate Muslims in Afghanistan kind of feel that, that the Taliban represents something really ferocious and savage in their country. And, you know, they've had 20 years of, of relative peace. And from Afghanistan's point of view, it has been a peaceful 20 years, no matter what other people may think abroad. And they've got soft, they've relied on the uh, extraordinary amounts of equipment that the West has plied them with, as though that's going to sort them out, you know, as that's going to save them. I mean, I a large gun is a very nice thing to have, no doubt, if you're a soldier, but it doesn't fire itself on its own. You have to fire it. You have to defend yourself using the equipment that you had given, you had been given. And what's happened, alas, is that the morale of the soldiers in the Afghan army was never terribly high. They were just proud of themselves and they use the money that they got legally and illegally from the outside world and the equipment that they got, and they strutted around in their uniforms. Directly, the Taliban came towards them in their raggedy clothes with their ancient AKs and so on. Those people with their, their classy, new, shiny weapons and their beautiful uniforms chucked the weapons, ripped off the uniforms and ran home. It's quite striking that President Biden in his speech earlier this week talked about, you know, we gave them everything, we gave them all these weapons, we gave them air equipment, which the Taliban doesn't have. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, but you took away the contractors who were operating the helicopters, right? So then they can't fly them. And you did this before people were evacuated from the country, which to John's point at the beginning, right? Like what, what did you think was going to happen? Yes, there was the superior military equipment that was rendered effectively 
useless. Mm. No, absolutely yeah. right. I mean, the former British Conservative politician and uh, and diplomat Rory Stewart said yesterday on a program I haven't been able to check it out yet, but he said that there are more American soldiers in the uh, American military people in the American embassy in London than there were in Afghanistan before the collapse happened. This was not a war that was ongoing. This was a, a government which was upheld by the will and power of the United States and other Western countries. The moment that that will was withdrawn, then everything was finished. It really uh, quite upsets me that nobody understood the nature of what was going on. Now you hear so many people, so many wiseacres telling us about how, you know, the Afghans always arise and throw out invaders and stuff like that. I mean, it doesn't sound to me still, even though the disaster has happened, as though anybody fully understands why it happened. Our colleague George Eaton spoke to Rory Stewart early this week, and I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for this as well. How much do you lay the blame at the feet of the, the Karzai and, and Ghani governments? Because you know, the, the, there's a great sense that this opportunity for to, to, to build the, the trust and the structures you would need to sustain the Afghanistan that arose from 2001, that, that, that they were never really put in place. Do you think it's ultimately their fault or, was, or were they faced with an impossible task? Uh, yeah, I think the latter. I think the task was, uh, was was impossible. No, I mean, I don't think it was their fault. I think it's thoroughly, thoroughly the fault of the United States. I don't think there's any real competition for that for that title. Karzai was a pleasant enough politician who, in most other countries in the region, would have been quite an effective president, good at pressing the flesh and good at understanding the right moments to turn up and show support for the kind of okay things and to uh, make quite sort of strong speeches when bad things happened. Uh, Ashraf Ghani, well, he's a, an international, was an international civil servant. He rose to the position that he did because he was well-spoken and quiet and intelligent and very pleasant and emollient. I never do think there was ever, ever very much there except for, for that, for the quietness and the confidence and the emollient. People elected him because they thought that he had a plan. Well, he did have a plan. He went through it with me in the week before he was made president. And I, I just sat there pretty appalled, actually, because he had got it all worked out to the day. By April the 15th, there would be an agreement about such and such. By the end of April, the lawyer jurgers of the country would agree that there was to be a, an end to corruption, that kind of thing. Well, Good luck, frankly. Good luck getting any. I mean, anybody, of course, will say yes. We'll we we will end corruption, but frankly, you know, 
just getting a, 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 a group of people together to agree it isn't going to make it happen. I never thought that he had the, the, the strength or the power, but it didn't matter as long as the United States and its allies were there on hand to say, look, if you mess around with Ghani, you're messing around with the greatest power on earth. When the greatest power on earth decided that it was tired of the situation and went away, then Ghani was finished. So Ghani has, has gone away, fled from, from the country, and they're left with the Taliban. Is some conversation now about how does the Taliban now compare to the Taliban back in 1996, which is a question I will put to you before clarifying that I do not mean, are they now nice and gentle and moderate? What I mean is, has the composition of who of who is the Taliban changed? No, I, I don't think it's changed all that much. I mean, of course, uh, you know, Mullah Omar, who was a superb guerrilla leader, isn't there any longer. But one of the uh, Haqqani family, who are some of the fiercest and most fearsome people in that in that entire country is now the probably I should think the number two or number three person in in influence in the government. It's not really about the movement as such. It's about the individuals who will come into into key positions. Now the the spokesman whom we we saw speaking at, at length at a at a press conference the other day is a man I've I've known for some years and interviewed though only ever by telephone I've never seen him face to face that was the first time I'd seen uh, uh, seen what he looked like I've got a bit of time for him <laughs> I remember once doing a, a, a quite an important interview with him on the phone very difficult to get hold of in the background I could hear a sort of buzzing noise and after a bit I said to him Mr Mujahid what's that noise in the background and he said oh well, it's a an American drone it's searching for me and I said well you probably want to stop talking and take cover don't you and he said no no this is more important than the drone I you have to have some admiration for, for somebody like that. And he's always a very pleasant, relatively easy to contact figure. But when he says that, you know, things are going to be fine and uh, the, the, nobody will suffer and so on, you can't believe it. I mean, that's, that's only what he thinks the Western listeners, particularly Western listeners, should hear it's not because he thinks it's going to happen, and it's not because it is going to happen. It's just something that he can say to calm people's fears. And it amazed me how this was broadcast as sort of and 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 represented as some kind of holy writ. The Taliban have said that they will, etc., etc., etc. Well, it isn't the Taliban. It's one man, and he knows how to interpret these things for a, a foreign audience. And even then, there are some onerous notes. I mean, as you as you point out in your essay, you say that you cite him saying that women will have to work within the frameworks of our Islamic laws, and it's not hard to imagine how that could be interpreted in a, in, a, in an extremely reactionary rate way that that, that that doesn't really spell any meaningful difference from life under the Taliban before. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you interpret. Islamic law in the way that the Taliban have always interpreted it. That means that women who leave the house will have to have the permission of their husbands or their fathers to go out. And 
their trips will have to be very short and they will have to be covered from head to foot in the burqas. And that's what he meant, but it sounded it sounded quite good. And a lot of people seemed to be quite relieved by, by what he'd said, as though one, he meant that there was going to be a liberal interpretation of those laws, which he certainly didn't say, and two, uh, as though he, as the spokesman, will be able to say anything, whatever. I'll put five pounds down on the table. He'll be the foreign minister in the new government. I mean, I've got no idea about the workings of these things, but that's my guess, because he looks quite good and he sounds quite good and the outside world heaves a sigh of relief when they hear him, but he won't be in charge. Who do you think is the target for this PR campaign? Because obviously there's no love lost between the US and the Taliban. Is this aimed more at regional powers, do you think? Is this aimed at the likes of China, Pakistan, Iran? Who who do the Taliban have in mind when they're telling their story to the wider world? I think they're most worried at the moment, although I suppose as every day passes, the worry fades, that President Biden will say, actually, I've changed my mind and we're not going and we're coming back. And if necessary, we'll use force to get rid of you Taliban people. Of course, you and I know that there isn't a hope in hell that he might do that, but they weren't certain. And I think they're both they're they're still quite nervous that the West will kind of take some kind of measures. And if I may, in a moment, I'd like to talk about that. China will be their big friend. Of course, uh, Afghanistan will be a a kind of part of the the wider uh, Chinese uh, sphere of influence from now on. And we know from so many other countries that what the Chinese will do, I mean, they will hoover up what they can get out of Afghanistan in terms of minerals and, you know, the agricultural products, anything that they feel that they need. And they will do, of course, absolutely zero to put any influence on on the, the Taliban government to behave as a government should. Russia is in the top pocket of China, will watch and add its advice and so on, which is was hard won by them, of course, but they won't, they won't do anything inevitably to improve the, the lives of, of, of people there. And other countries will simply, you know, move in and move out as they, as they choose. Yes, I suppose the idea that, that, that these neighbours who are driven, as you say, by the purest realpolitik are particularly concerned how the Taliban treat women, you know, it, it seems unlikely, doesn't it, that China's going to make that uh, the price of knitting Afghanistan into the Belt and Road or, or, or whatever. So that's, I think, going to be something worth watching. Would you like to come on to that point that you, you, you just mentioned about, about yes. the, the, the Western response? Yes, I, I wanted to say that already... Even even just a few days after the the fall of Kabul, the resistance is is starting. It's basing itself in the Panjshir Valley, which is about 150 miles northeast of of Kabul, and people are flocking there to form a resistance movement. It's where the main resistance under Ahmed Shah Massoud operated uh, when the Russians were in control in in Afghanistan. And 
they have a very good claim to be able to say that they were the ones who effectively drove the Russians out. That will be the the seat, the heart of what will be a new Northern Alliance. In 2001, this alliance gathered together, also based partly in uh, in the Panjshir Valley, and they they drove the Taliban out. And that is what will be happening. So at the moment, leading figures, people that want to resist are heading for the Panjshir Valley. And I, I have no personal knowledge of this whatsoever, but I'm absolutely 100% certain that perhaps even already there will be CIA operatives there, and SIS operatives there, both of whom have quite a considerable amount of experience now in Afghanistan and and perhaps other organizations. And that at some stage, and I, I, I wouldn't be foolish enough to try to predict it, but at some stage, a, a new Northern Alliance will, will arise. And where that takes us, well, we simply don't know yet. We're going to come next on to our listener question, but I just have to take that opportunity to ask you, obviously there are so many unknowns here, but do you see the potential for this descending into civil war? I think we've seen civil war of a kind in the last few days, and I think it will just uh, just continue. And if if I'm right and and there is a new northern alliance forming then there will be there will be civil war there and there'll be civil war in the west and there'll be civil war perhaps even in the in the south but civil war you know i mean one of the one of the things that that struck me about reading President Biden's statements was that he seemed to feel, and a lot of the people that 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 you hear who were against the Western presence in, in Afghanistan seemed to feel that uh, there was there was constant fighting going on everywhere. I mean that simply simply wasn't true. And quite small numbers of people were being injured and died. I don't mean to say that doesn't matter, it doesn't count or anything like that, but in a society as fractured and as inherently violent as Afghanistan, that is pretty much the normal state of things. It doesn't matter who's in power in Kabul, there will be violent groups of armed men going around and shooting each other. But it isn't to call it a war doesn't really kind of, I think, sum up what, what the reality will be. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just two dollars a week in America. Don't forget, you can now listen to our special Germany Lex podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com slash Germany. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Well, with that, Emily, would you like to introduce our You Ask Us question? Yes. So this is a question from Twitter. The tweeter did not sign it, so we'll keep it anonymous. And the question is, in retrospect, did Obama, President Obama, make a mistake in approving the 2009 surge in Afghanistan? And would the U.S. political situation have allowed him to maintain a low-level force, keeping the Taliban under control instead of attempting to defeat them? What do you think about that, John? Well, I think... First of all, if I may say so, I don't want to be offensive. It's a very American-centred question. Now, it's inevitable at a time when America has suffered a major foreign policy defeat, and it's happening in Britain in exactly the same terms, that people are obsessed with what one American president did, one American president didn't do. But The fact is that the situation in Afghanistan continued regardless of the numbers of of troops that the Americans put in there. And it isn't really about surges and so on, as it indeed was in, in Iraq. It was about the political will of the United States and therefore of its allies to keep on shoring up the government. The number of troops may or may not have affected the level of fighting. In fact, I don't think there was an, uh, uh, any great intention of destroying the Taliban because they're, they're pretty much indestructible. I think the intention under Obama, as far as I could tell, was just to keep the level of fighting right, right down and, and just to continue supporting the, the government. That, of course, came to an end. And now we really will see the kind of fighting, I I suspect, at any rate, in the first instance, that that people thought was endemic in Afghanistan throughout. But I think to pin the blame on any particular president isn't, isn't really right. I mean, if you want to blame anybody... What about Donald Trump talking to a, a group of Afghan extremists behind the backs of, or at least without the, the involvement of the Afghan government, and doing a deal with them? I mean, I, I was... Reminded, by this, you mean, you mean the Doha talks? The Doha talks, yeah. the Doha talks. I was reminded so much of that that, uh, pathetic British general in 1842 signed a deal with the political leader in Kabul to be able to withdraw his troops to their base in Jalalabad 
And of course, he was delighted to sign the agreement, didn't mean anything. And it's the same thing with that Doha agreement. They were all delighted to sign it, but it meant absolutely nothing at all. And just on that topic, briefly, Emily, wonder if you have any reflections on the on the domestic political fallout in the US. I mean, is this is 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 Biden going to suffer for this? Do you think, or will the Republicans get their share of the blame from the electorate? I'm sort of of two minds on this because, on the one hand, I, I think there will be some political fallout, right? And the question is to what to what degree? It's been very interesting to watch the Trump administration or the former officials in the Trump administration, including the former president, who, as John just said came up with this deal, say, well, no, this wasn't our deal. He broke our deal. We would have done it better. We would have been more competent and taken more care of refugees, which I have to say just requires a complete suspension of disbelief if one was sentient during the, the Trump administration and the Trump years. So it's it's been it's been interesting watching Democrats and Republicans kind of like swap jerseys and, and run to opposite sides of the, the pitch, as you call it. The other thing is that there was and is tremendous weariness with this war after 20 years and all of that money and all of those lives that Americans spent. And so, you know, the idea of withdrawing prior to the withdrawal was a popular one. And we'll see if Biden is kind of proven right in saying like, nope, I'm this was what I was doing. I stuck to it. I did what I said I was going to do. So I do have my credibility if people believe that or if they say, but look at but but look at how we lost this war. Right. Nobody. I, I think it was Fareed Zakaria who said there's no elegant way to lose a war, but he was the president under whom it was it was admitted to be lost, right? And I think that is displeasing to people. And then, I mean, I guess the the third and most cynical thing that I would say is that I do not think that most Americans care about Afghan lives, right? I, I don't think that most people care about what happens to the people who are, I mean, right now when the, the images are rolling on CNN and they're seeing these people outside the airport and they're hearing the reports of, oh, how horrible it is. Yes, now it's in front of mind and some people will care, but I think for most Americans, it will be whether we see a resurgence of terror attacks that will make them decide whether this is something that they will continue to care about or not. But what do you think, John? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure you're right. What I think about is what other American allies are, are feeling about what's happened. How would you feel if you were in, say, Taiwan, not actually an open ally of, of the United States, but you are entirely dependent for your freedoms and your way of, of, of life on the support of a government which has now shown that it's perfectly prepared to hand over people under utmost the utmost threat to their worst enemies. I don't think it gives a terribly good and reliable view of American determination. There are so many other countries which must now be thinking, you know, this is, we could be like at the end of the First World War when they're just going to go back home and they're not going to care about anything. And comes at a time of great weakness in Europe weakness in Britain, that, that seems to be going without statement, and the growing strength of two actually increasingly un, unpleasant dictatorships in the world. I, I think this is a seriously difficult and, and worrying time, not just for America, but for its friends right across the world. I'm reminded also of the way the Trump administration sold out the Kurds 
in northern Syria. I mean, it's a different circumstances, but sends a, a similarly chilling message to other, other US allies. Let's come on to the final section of the podcast in which we look ahead to the next seven days. And I think we'll, we'll keep this focused on Afghanistan. John, as you're our guest, is there anything, obviously there's a lot going on at the moment, terribly unpredictable, but is there anything, anything that you in particular are going to be paying attention to as, as, as particularly significant? Well, I think the key thing will be to see the names of, uh, of the kind of leadership that, that arises. When I say that the leadership doesn't have the control over the sort of day-to-day dealings of, of the Taliban, I think I'm right. But nevertheless, we'll see some sort of, of ideas about how its political approach is going to go. I mean, will they want to take the the former vice president into into government will they want to open up to other people other kind of fairly radical muslims but not not their kind of of muslims or will they just simply say look it's safer if we run things ourselves we'll start to get a little bit of an inkling of that in the next seven days. But I think, frankly, those seven days will mostly be taken up with more of these terrible scenes at the airport, the brutality of it. I I was in touch with a friend of mine at the UN compound today, and she said this morning, somebody threw a, a baby, a new, fairly newborn baby over the wall of the compound that the UN occupy, and they're they're racing around trying to find somebody who can look after this this newborn baby. It's that kind of thing. The Taliban. She also told me this. This UN friend of mine told me that the the U that the Taliban are starting to demand the right to move in and search the the rooms and um, occupation places of of the UN team there. It's not a very big team at the moment. And that they know, and I know from my own experience, personal experience of that, that just means they'll go and see what they can trash and steal. And we're going to see, I think, terrible scenes of that kind over the next few days before things properly settle. How horrifying. Emily, what will you be paying attention to? I will be following the politics of refugee resettlement. And what I mean by that is not just the not just physically are we able to are, are is the United States and its allies are they able to get people out of Afghanistan, but the political conversation around it. There are already reports that the that Stephen Miller and his ilk, Stephen Miller being Trump's immigration point person, is trying to influence, you know, the Republican Party to say, well, they shouldn't come here. There are reports that Biden White House officials did not want to take too many refugees because it would have been seen as as democratic weakness. This is all appalling, <laughs> as is the fact that Biden has said, well, we, there are 2,000 people with uh, special immigrant visas, um, so people who worked for the U.S. government for an, a certain period of time already here. 2,000 people. There are tens of thousands of people just in that category who, who, who are eligible for special immigrant visas and their families who, need, who, are, who are eligible to come here. This has been a problem for years. There has been a backlog of these special immigrant visas for literal years. This is not a surprise, right, that these people need to be resettled. The United States has made them more vulnerable by bringing them into their service. And not just people who have worked for the United States, but people who have worked for NGOs, journalists. And so I will be watching whether the Biden administration and other governments throughout, throughout the world is willing to demonstrate that it has enough of a spine to take in 
the people who were most vulnerable, who, who have been made most vulnerable through this war and through the decision to, to end it? A question facing European governments too. I will be watching everything we've discussed, but also the regional picture. As John says, there's a, a big questions about the role of um, Pakistan, what China does. And I've written about this in my New Statesman column this week about the prospect of a, of a new great game, as it were, in Afghanistan, but played out by these regional powers and the quest for influence in a rapidly changing situation there. So I'll be watching that. Well, all that remains now is to say a very big thank you to John Simpson of the BBC for his excellent essay in this week's New Statesman and for joining us on World Review. Thank you very much, John. Could I just, uh, right at the end, say there haven't been many people that have behaved uh, well in this whole appalling business, but what about the pilot of that American plane that took out 680 people? One should linger on these on these impressive acts amid so much barbarism. I, I absolutely agree. That's a very good point. Um, thank you very much, John, for joining us. And you can read John's essay on the New Statesman website and in the latest issue of the New Statesman. We'll also put other articles on topics we've discussed in this episode in the show notes. And stay tuned for our New Statesman World Review newsletter, which will continue to follow the events as they unfold. You can subscribe to that at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. And as a reminder, as always, if you have enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, like, subscribe and follow. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening. And until next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.